How's everybody today? Good, good, good. It's good to see you. If this is your very first time with us today, welcome. We're so glad you guys are here, and, um, and, I, and I hope this is exactly where God wants you to stay. I hope you come back next week, try it all over again. We want you to be here. We want you to join us in what God is doing um, in this church and in our community. So, so welcome to you. Um, hey, wanna, as we get started, I want to tell you about a few things uh, happening. Out in the lobby, um, out by the, by the glass wall at the very end, you're going to notice a table, and on that table are some pins, and there's some labels. And what this is about is um, our, our building out west, that we're our second campus. Um, it is all framed in. I mean, everything, I mean, it's all built. You can go out there and you can walk the whole floor plan. I mean, it's really awesome how things are coming together. We have been very intentional with trying to, to, to cover that place over with scripture. We buried Bible in the foundation. We put parts of this building in there to, to link it all together. And we've always planned on covering the frames, the, the, the walls and everything with scripture. So here's how we're gonna do that. If you would like to participate, you can go out to that table. And if you wanna write a scripture down or if God lays one on your heart, um, write it on those labels. And we're gonna send a group out there in the next week or so. They're gonna take all those labels, hopefully hundreds and hundreds of these scripture labels, and they're gonna walk around and they're gonna stick them all over the church, all the walls. So you know that if you're ever over there, you're walking down hallways that are being covered over the word of God. You go in the bathroom and you're surrounded by the word of God. You know, and... Um, I don't know why I said that. Um, maybe that moment in your life needs extra prayer than others. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. No matter where you go, you're going to be surrounded by God's word. That's the whole idea. So that's out there. We'd love for everybody to just write down some scripture, and it's going to be stuck all over the place, and, and it's going to be great. Um, uh, speaking of there, out the West Campus, progress, it, I mean, it feels like it got kicked into overdrive in the last month. Uh, every time I'm out there, there's tons of crews. They started hanging sheetrock just the other day. See, isn't that awesome? Um, <laughs> it really is. So just keep praying about that. It's great. Also, I want to let you know that um, we're going to be covering a lot of Scripture today. We're going to start in Exodus 17, but we're going to be all over the Bible. So if you came in here today going, man, I really wish there was a little bit more Scripture in the sermons, you're going to get it today. Okay, so also, if you want to put your finger in Matthew chapter 4, we're going to be spending some time there as well. Just giving you a heads up, we're going to be all over. And um, today's sermon is going to be a little bit kind of fast-moving, and there's going to be a lot coming at you from different directions. I know you can handle it. I know it's uh, 10.26 in the morning, you've had some coffee, you had some donuts in your system, you should be good to go, right? All right, awesome, awesome. Hey, do you remember when, uh, way back early in this series, back before our Christmas break, and we were talking specifically about the 10 plagues that God sent on Egypt? Back then, there was a reoccurring theme. There was something that I would say often, probably for about a month, I said the same thing, and it went like this. Man, Pharaoh just doesn't learn, does he? Do you remember us talking about that? Plague after plague, demonstration of God's power over and over again, yet he refused to let the Israelites go. He refused to surrender to the Lord, and we just kept saying, man, Pharaoh just doesn't learn. You know what's really interesting about now where we are in our study in Exodus chapter 17? You could say the same thing about the Israelites. Man, the Israelites just don't seem to learn, do they? Display after display of God's power, deliverance from Egypt, passing through the Red Sea in a mighty demonstration of God, pillar of fire by night, pillar of cloud by day, water turning pure, bread from heaven, quail from God, and yet, and yet they doubt him. Over and over, we just go, these guys 
are never going to learn. Now, it would be unfair to say that they were struggling with the exact same thing as Pharaoh. Pharaoh had a hard heart, and that kept him from surrendering to the Lord. I wouldn't say that right now about the Israelites, but I would say this, that Pharaoh and the Israelites share a very similar struggle, and that struggle is this. They can see the obvious truth right in front of them, but they still chose to not trust God all the way. They can see what is obvious, but they don't trust God. And it is gonna be a problem for years and years to come. So as we approach Exodus chapter 17 today, you're gonna see that the Israelites are going to grumble again. What's crazy to me is that they become repeat offenders. They grumble about the very same thing. If this was a song, we would say that chapter 17 is just like chapter 16. We would say, same song, second verse. But as we continue to look at the Israelites grumble against the Lord, there is some new things for us to see as a church today. There is actually some truths that come out of their grumbling and God's response that will help you and I walk closer with the Lord today. And I hope that you will see that before we are done. You might remember in the last chapter or so, God um, changed their bitter water into good drinking water and everybody happy. God brought them quail to eat for meat and they ate till they were full, and everybody happy. God rained down bread from heaven, heaven's bread, manna, and everybody ate, and everybody's happy. We come to chapter 17, nobody's happy again. Let's read it together. Exodus chapter 17, verse one. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? Now it sounds familiar, right? I mean, this sounds like the same conversation we've seen several times already. I've tried to visualize what this moment was like. I wasn't there, you weren't there, but it seems like it was a pretty intense moment. Here they are camped, and I don't know how many days they were there at Rephidim, but um, they can't find any water to drink. So they went from a place that had supplies to a place that did not have supplies, and after a while, they're getting thirsty. And so I, I envision it like this. Some of the leaders of Israel, they go and knock on Moses' tent, or I guess it's a tent. It sounded like this. So anyway, Moses answers, can I help you? Can we talk, Moses? Yeah, sure, come on in. And like, we got some concerns about this place. Well, what's your concerns? I'm ad-libbing, by the way, in case this isn't in the text. We, we've got some concerns. Well, what are your concerns? There's nothing to drink. Moses may say, don't worry about it. God's got this. I don't know. You, you brought us out here and it's bad. No, you just don't worry. And then maybe it gets louder and louder and, and maybe their voices can be heard outside of the tent. Maybe some of the Israelites are gathering around. What's going on in there? Maybe a large crowd starts to gather around Moses' uh, tent there in the Israelite camp. Maybe there's somebody instigating with a bullhorn and he's yelling at the crowd, what do we want? Water, when do we want it? Now, I, I don't know. I don't know how this went down. But it grows and grows. It's a very intense moment. And, 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 it's, and it's bad, it's really bad. And, and, and Moses just says, why are you guys testing God? You can hear the frustration in his voice. Haven't you seen him provide? Why do you keep thumbing your nose at him? Now look at verse three. 
But the people were thirsty for water and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children or livestock die of thirst? Again, same kind of complaining, we're gonna die. Why'd you do this to us? We were better off in Egypt. Very common statements in chapter 16, more common in 17. Verse four, then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. Now, I don't know if Moses was overreacting or if his life was really in danger. I'm not really sure, it's not clear. But he goes to God, said, these people are nuts, God, they're insane out here. And, and they're gonna kill me. And they have this conversation. I wonder, have you ever been so frustrated with somebody that you just look up to God and you go, I don't know what I'm gonna do with him. What am I gonna do with her? It's a level of frustration that I hope none of us ever get there. But if you have, and you just don't know what to do, and you cry out to God, maybe you can relate to how Moses is feeling about these two million people that he led out of Egypt. Now, I will say this. This is not the last time that Moses and God are gonna have an intense conversation about the Israelite people. In this moment, in Exodus 17, Moses is like, what am I gonna do with these people? A few chapters from now, God is gonna talk to Moses and be like, what am I gonna do with these people? They don't worship me, they don't follow me, they don't do what I say, and there's this moment coming in the future, not today, but a few weeks out, where God is even gonna say this to Moses. I think I might just wipe the Israelites off the earth, and I'm gonna start over and make a mighty nation out of you, Moses, instead. Oh, this is not the last kind of conversation like this that we're gonna study about in our series. Look at verse five. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of all the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. So we haven't heard about the staff in a while, but you know, it came about the Red Sea Cross. Every time this staff comes out, something spectacular happens. It's the very presence of God in Moses' hands. Verse six, I will stand there before you by the rock at Oreb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And can I just stop for just a moment and just declare something that I hope you would agree with? This is an incredible miracle. Water coming out of a rock. Out of the rock at Horeb, to be more specific. And I don't wanna read more into this, but it kind of makes you think that the rock of Horeb was something that people knew was a familiar thing, maybe a landmark, or maybe it was just what the name that Moses referred to it years later when he writes the account down for the whole world. I, I don't know. But he says, you go stand by the rock of Horeb. It's like it's got a title. Oh, I know that rock and out of it, you strike it with this staff, and out of it will come enough drinking water for two million people and their livestock and everything that they need. Friends, I want you to know something today. This is a massive amount of water. If you think that it's a, it's a little trickle of a stream and that's gonna be enough for two million people, you would be wrong. I envision a geyser came out of this rock and it created a massive amount of water. There are multiple places all over the Bible that reference the Exodus account. The Psalms, you may not realize this, the Psalms talk about the Israelites and the Exodus a lot. And we get added details from the Psalms about some moments that Moses writes about. Like Psalm chapter 105, verse 41, details some of the events of the Exodus. Now listen to what it says about this moment. He opened the rock, talking about God, and water gushed out. It flowed like a river in the desert. That would be an awesome sight to see, wouldn't, wouldn't it? 
this barren wasteland that God has led them to, no water anywhere, and then all of a sudden, a giant river comes cutting through the middle of the desert. And, and, and these people are so thirsty, you know, Moses said, they're gonna kill me if they don't get some water. They're so thirsty. I, I would imagine the scene looked like this. This huge river appears out of this rock, this geyser, and, and I think they're doing the Nestle plunge, they're swimming, and I think they're jumping in. I think they got buckets of water, they're putting them over their head. They go from very unhappy to life is great, and you have all this water. Psalm 78 is another one of those psalms that talks about the Exodus, and, um, and, it, and it talks about this moment. It says, he, again, God, split the rocks, verse 15, in the wilderness and gave them water as abundant as the seas. I would argue that this miracle is way up there on the amazing scale. And where did the Bible say this is gonna happen? The location is the rock at Horeb. If you think back really hard, where have we heard that word before, Horeb? I wanna connect something from earlier in Exodus. I'm connecting for you an event that happened in Exodus chapter three at Horeb. Do you remember what it was? This is the general area where Moses was tending his flocks when God set a bush on fire and called out to Moses. This is that same area, Horeb. And you might recall too, back in Exodus chapter three, that when this burning bush event happened at Horeb, it was near the mountain of God. Now, back then, I shared with you, we're not gonna talk much about the mountain of God here in chapter three because we're gonna talk a lot about it later on in Exodus. That mountain of God is Mount Sinai. And there's so much that's gonna happen at Mount Sinai. So, this whole event with the, the rock that split, that brought out water, it was near the mountain of God, Sinai. It was not far from where the burning bush happened. This is a little bit more familiar territory to Moses, even though when that event happened, he had gone way off into the wilderness and he was far from home as well. You guys know I love biblical archeology, span don't you? I love it. I preached a whole series about it last summer where how archeology span proves the Bible true. I, I can tell you that what has fascinated me for a lot of years is the Exodus journey. Where exactly did the Israelites go? Where did they cross the Red Sea? Where is the real Mount Sinai? Now, I haven't done extensive study, but I'm one of those guys that, that reads up on it and I go, man, that is really cool. Do you guys realize if we could ever find the real Mount Sinai, what that would mean? If you looked at a map today and you, or you did a Google search for Mount Sinai, there is a traditional site of Mount Sinai where um, there's even a Christian monastery that has been built there, and it, and, and it is known that that is the location. But to be quite honest with you, most archeologists have dismissed that site because there's no evidence for that being, it doesn't even make sense for that to be the Mount Sinai of the Bible. And um, basically, just because somebody named it years ago and in 520 AD they built a monastery, that doesn't make that Mount Sinai, you know? So people have been trying for years, and I've, I've been fascinated by it. But there's a number of sites. They say it could be this mountain. It could be this mountain. Is this one correct? Is this one correct? I'll be honest with you. I don't know. And I don't know if we'll ever know with the evidence we have definitively which mountain was Mount Sinai. It's there. And I hope we find it one day. It's somewhere. We just don't know. Now, even though my mind's not made up on where the real Mount Sinai is, that's not going to stop me from showing you a picture of something that I find awesome. And at the same time, knowing that, it could be nothing. 
As long as we're on the same page, I'm about to show you something I think is awesome, but it could be nothing. One of the proposed sites for uh, the real Mount Sinai is found in modern day Saudi Arabia, which you gotta be careful when you try to attach locations today to Bible names and you know, uh, the, the lines are different, friends. But modern day Saudi Arabia, part of it is where the exodus could have happened, where they might have traveled. Uh, it's, it's possible for sure. There's a mountain range over there. There's an area that a number of people have looked at and said, I think that's it. I think that if they crossed the Red Sea here, it would have put them here and you can do the research on your own but it's attracted a lot of attention and there's plenty of, of detractors as well that says no, so I, I don't know. But there is a thing out there um, in the area near what they think is Mount Sinai um, and they call it the split rock at Horeb. And some would say that this rock feature is the very rock that Moses struck in Exodus chapter 17. Now, let me be clear. I don't know if it is or isn't, but I think it's awesome. <laughs> so let me show you a picture of it. This is the rock right here. Have you seen this picture before? Yeah. Okay. Hear me, friends. It probably isn't, but it could be. <laughs> so you look at this rock, and, and it is huge. I mean, it is absolutely huge rock, and I'm not saying I agree with it, but, but when you think about it, here's a big rock, stands out all by itself, all out in the landscape. It's, it's head and shoulders above everything else. It's split right down the middle, and it kind of makes you go, could water have come flowing out of that? Well, maybe, I don't know, enough to, to give two million people enough water to drink? I don't know. It is something that several million people could have seen for miles away, and it may be in the general vicinity of what some say is the Mount, real Mount Sinai. And you look at the landscape around it, it is dry, it is barren, there is no water around there. You would see if they, if if the Israelites actually came to this place, they would grumble about water, and I'm sure they were thirsty. It's hot, it's nasty, it's not a, an awesome place to be. Is it the rock that Moses split? I don't know. Let me give you a little bit of a perspective here of how big this thing is. Here's the next picture. Can you see the little dude at the bottom? Okay, so this, this so it's a little deceiving from, like, you guys can stand up in the back. Is it on the side? Yeah, you're out of luck. Anyway, um, no, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm kidding, I'm trying to get out of the way. So you see this guy at the bottom, I mean, can you imagine if that was Moses and he's up there and he's like, boosh, boosh. I don't know, maybe he tubed down the river, I don't know. Um, now I tell you all that, a lot of people think it is, and I don't know if it is, but it's kinda fun to think about a little bit. Maybe that's not the rock at all. Maybe it's, maybe the rock doesn't even exist anymore. Maybe the rock, exp I don't know. But wherever it is, if it's still visible or not, it's a mighty miracle. It's a power, it's a demonstration of God's mighty power and his glory. And it's way up there on the miraculous scale. I, um, you would think with such an amazing display of God's power, they would have given it an amazing name that they would have, this would have been a name given that would have lasted for our time to point to the glory of God. You would think that's it. But honestly, Moses was pretty downright frustrated by this whole situation, and he gives it a different name. Look at verse seven. And he called the place Massa 
and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? They were so thirsty, they questioned if God was even there. And so when all this water came and God provided for them, Moses says, you know what I'm doing? I'm gonna name this place Massa and Meribah. So everybody knows that this place was a place of testing and arguing. That's exactly what those two words mean. Massa and Meribah, testing and arguing. It's not a good name. It's not a good name at all. This great place of miracle from here on out, because the Israelites are gonna spend some time here. Every time they get something to drink, they're gonna remember this place as testing and arguing. How would you like to be reminded of a certain location of a failure of yours? Every time that they tell the story for years to come, God did this mighty thing for us at the side of testing and arguing. You tell your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren, God provided in mighty ways. Where at, mama? Where at, papa? Well, testing and arguing, that's where. It's not good. You know, Moses uh, told the people, why do you keep putting the Lord your God to the test? And I wanna make sure that we understand exactly how they did that. How exactly did they put God to the test out here in the wilderness? Well, they put God to the test three ways. And the very first way is this. They put God to the test by demanding his provision. They demanded water to drink. They're like, God, give us water. What are you gonna do? Give us water, that's what we want. And I wonder if anybody in this room has ever done anything like that before. Demand something of God. What are you gonna do for me, God? What do I want? Water. When do I want it? Now. You know, if we're not careful in how we approach the Lord, we could quickly cross through the threshold of humility to pride and insist the Lord do something for us instead of us wait patiently on the Lord. Friends, there is a huge difference between saying, Lord, I'm really thirsty and I, I feel like I need something, but no matter what, I trust you with it. Lord, your will, not my, this is what I think I need, but I already know, Lord, you know what I need. And we're talking, Lord, I've got some desperate feelings here, but whatever you decide, God, I will be content with. That is a different approach to God than, God, I'm thirsty and what are you gonna do? God, I want this job, open the door now. God, I want a family the way I designed it, I want it now. What are you gonna do for me, God? Where are you, God? There is a difference there. And these Israelites tested him by demanding that he provide for them the way they wanted to. How else did they test God? They tested God by, by questioning his protection. They asked these questions, we just saw it in the text. Is this why you brought us out of Egypt, God? Did you bring us out here to torture us? Did you bring us out here to die of thirst? Did you bring us out here to kill us off, our animals, our kids, everything? And you know, we can do the same thing. And sometimes not even realize it. we can accuse and we can challenge God about the things that he puts on us and allows to come through our lives, especially when we go through our own trials. God, why are you putting me through this? God, are you doing this just to prove that I am not strong enough to endure it? God, are you trying to tear me down? God, are you doing this so the whole world will knows that I'm a failure? God, why are you doing this to me? Friends, we have to be very careful, learn some lessons here from the Israelites to not put the Lord, your God, to the test. 
If you're going through something very difficult right now, like you, like you came in here today and you're like, man, I'm in my own wilderness. I want to encourage you to remember something. I want you to try to focus your attention on something else. Not necessarily your wilderness, but what you have been brought through. That you have been brought through a bondage, a bondage to sin. And I would say that that is a greater rescue than what the Israelites went through in the Exodus. Don't lose sight, my friends, of the big picture. That you can trust the Lord, that you can succeed through your very difficult situation if you trust in the Lord and let him see you through it and let him provide and guide you through it. Where the Israelites failed, you can succeed with this one simple thing. Lord, I believe in you and I will trust you. And I know, Lord, your ways are better than my ways. And Lord, I may not understand it, but that's okay. You do, and I know you've got my back. It's a different way. How else did they, they put God to the test? They put God to the test when they doubted his presence. They doubted, it said right there in verse seven, Moses says, why do you keep testing the Lord when you say, is the Lord among us? Or not, And that phrase right there that they would even utter these words absolutely right now to this day blows me away. When they're talking to Moses and they said, is the Lord with us or not? That's testing the Lord. It blows me away that they would say it because they said it under the shadow of what? There's a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. God's presence was visible to them every day. They walked up and walked up and picked up the bread, a miracle of God every day. How dare they ask the question, is God still with us or not? It's ridiculous. Friends, don't for a second get caught up today in the same kind of failure as the Israelites did questioning if God is with you or not. Friends, God won't abandon you, never forsake you. No matter how long your wilderness experience feels, no matter how deserted your wilderness looks like, God is not going to abandon you. And you can find success where the Israelites found nothing but failure. And even though in this moment they were putting God to the test, in actuality, they were failing the test that God put them on. Do you remember from the last chapter, God said, I'm gonna put the Israelites to the test. How was he gonna test them? I'm gonna test them with water, I'm gonna test them with food, and I'm gonna test them with battle. Why did God do that? To bring out the best in them. To show them that as long as you depend on me, I got you. You don't have to worry. That was the whole reason for the test, and they are failing it miserably. Now. I wanna show you something today um, that's kinda similar to what I showed you last week. Last week, I showed you a New Testament parallel to what was happening in Exodus chapter 16. And that parallel was the words of Jesus that he spoke on the Sermon on the Mount. Now today, I wanna show you another parallel. We're gonna go back to Jesus. And I wanna show you how Jesus' wilderness experience himself is very similar and it's connected to the wilderness experience of the Israelites. So flip over to the New Testament, Matthew chapter four. And while you're finding that, let me just tell you what's happening. In Matthew chapter four, Jesus has just been baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. This is that moment when God spoke from heaven and he said, this is my son, whom I love and who I'm well pleased. Many people would say, this is when Jesus went public with his ministry, where um, it got kicked into overdrive. It was this announcement that Jesus is here. 
And the first thing that happens after Jesus' baptism is he gets driven out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and he doesn't eat anything. So that's the context of Matthew 4, and let's read it together. Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Jesus is being put to the test himself. Now, the 40 days themselves would be quite the test, but here at the very end, we learn that the enemy, Satan, the tempter, he has lots of names, he comes to Jesus in this very hungry state. And I would say this, Jesus's 40 days in the wilderness corresponds with the Israelites 40 years in the wilderness as well. And the reason why I say they correspond, I'll explain it to you as we get through this, and I think you'll see it as well. It corresponds because the conversation that Jesus has with Satan very much deals with the Exodus. Verse three, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. This very first test involved what? Food. Just like the Israelites. We're talking about food. There is a test about food. The Israelites grumbled about it, and we read all about that in chapter 16, and Satan tells a very hungry Jesus, you turn these stones into bread. I can imagine the elaborated conversation sounded like this. Come on, Jesus, you know you want it. You know you can do it. You, you know you want some nice hot bread right off the coals. You know, you, you want this. And you know what? Forget the big guy upstairs. Take matters into your own hands. Snap your fingers, create some bread, and eat. And what does Jesus say? Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is quoting scripture. Do you know which verse and do you know what that verse is about? Jesus is quoting the words of Moses. At the end of the 40 year wilderness experience that the Israelites had, Moses gives them some final instructions before entering the promised land. And in Deuteronomy chapter eight, Moses says this to them. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know that, that what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. That's why he had this whole thing. Will you follow me or not? And then it says, he humbled you causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither of you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you this lesson, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Israel was supposed to depend on the Lord in everything. That's what the whole 40 years was about. The Israelites failed, but let me tell you, in Jesus' 40 days of wandering in the wilderness, he's gonna pass this test. He would not turn the stones to bread, but rather he would trust the Lord. That's the whole point. He says, you know how the, elaborate, you know how the Israelites failed? And God just demanded to live on bread, but trust the Lord. Jesus like, I will trust the Lord, and I will not do that, not at all. Jesus is connecting his experience with the Israelites' experience. Verse five, 
Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point in the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, Jesus is quoting scripture. What is he quoting? Where is he from? What's it from? What's it about? Jesus is quoting, again, the words of Moses instructing the Israelites before they entered the promised land. It's Deuteronomy 6, 16. He tells the Israelites, do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. So Moses is telling them, you know your big failure at Massa, the Exodus 17? That's the verse Jesus was quoting. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. That moment when God brought water out of the rock, when people questioned if God was still there and it was a horrible thing and this rock in this area is known as testing and arguing and Moses says, don't do that ever again. And Jesus quotes Moses to Satan, do not test me. Verse eight, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I give to you, he said, which is funny to me as if the devil could ever give Jesus these things. But he said, all this I'll give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. If you ever need a more declarative verse in the Bible of what Satan really wants, you're not gonna find it. It's right here. Jesus, if you just bow down and worship me instead. You know that's all he wants from you, right? At the heart of his purpose and his mission is for you to surrender to him. Away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. Again, Jesus rebuked Satan with scripture. What did he quote? What was it about? Again, going back to the Exodus in the book of Deuteronomy, what Moses, he's quoting Moses, verse 13, Moses said to the people, fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. And then Satan had to leave, because Jesus told him to, and he has to obey. I mean, th this is an incredible connection between Jesus' rebuke of Satan and what's happening with the Israelites in the desert. The Israelites would ultimately fail the test, but Jesus would ultimately succeed. Unlike the Israelites, Jesus was the only one who was obedient, who remained true, and was faithful to God. Which makes his death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins as the perfect sinless sacrifice, the ultimate victory for us. Which brings me back to the rock that Moses struck at Horeb that provided all the life-giving water to the Israelites. Was that just a plain old rock out in the wilderness? Or was there something more than meets the eye to this rock? Well, I can tell you, according to the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, it was more than just a plain old rock in the wilderness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is teaching the Christians at the city of Corinth about following the Lord and what it means to live a godly life. And there's a whole lot of things he was trying to show them at Corinth. 
and he refers back to the Exodus. Listen to what Paul writes about the Exodus and about this very moment in Exodus chapter 17. He says this, for I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, who were their ancestors? The original Israelites. They were all under the cloud. What's that cloud? The pillar of cloud, God's presence. And they all passed through the sea. What's he connecting them to? The whole rescue. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And what he means by that, I believe, is that they identified with Moses as their deliverer who had a shared experience of deliverance through the Red Sea. I believe that's what he's saying. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And what's this last little detail he says? And the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. Paul is clearly connecting the events of the wilderness of the Exodus to the church today, that these two things are connected. What was happening then is not too different from what is happening now. Jesus was present in the wilderness with the Israelites and Jesus is present today with the true followers of Jesus. And this rock that Moses struck on that day that provided all this water to the Israelites, which absolutely saved them in their desperation. It was like, in my opinion, a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do. Remember early in our study when we were studying about the Passover and all the instructions about the Passover lamb. Do you remember when we learned that the Passover lamb is a picture of Jesus? I believe this rock at Horeb is like that. It is a picture of Jesus. This rock, what the people deserve, they they deserve for God to strike them and take them out. But what happened instead? God struck the rock in their place and out from the rock came the life-giving water. They deserved to get struck, but God struck the rock instead and saved them. And Jesus, our rock, was struck for our salvation. And out of him came the life-giving water that we needed. Jesus said this during his ministry in John 7. Jesus said, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Of course, we're not talking about actual water anymore. We're talking about a very spiritual, significant moment. Jesus would have a conversation with a woman by the well in John chapter four, and they were talking about water. And then Jesus says this to her, Everyone who drinks this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Friends, all that to say, Jesus died the death we deserved. Jesus took the striking that we deserved. And by believing in Jesus ourselves, 
We drink from the water of life for eternal life that can come only through Jesus Christ. Jesus gave us the water we really needed. And of course, I'm talking in the spiritual realm here. The Lord did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And all of those that believe in him will be refreshed and nourished by the spirit every day of their life until we enter into heaven forever. So it comes down to this, friends, and I hope all of this is clear. I know it's kind of complex and I'm squeezing a lot into a short amount of time. Who do you trust today? Are you in the wilderness? Are you in a season of struggle? Are you putting God to the test? You ought not to do that. You got questions? What are we gonna eat, what are we gonna drink? Maybe it's uh, other questions. Don't ever take your eyes off the big picture. God's got this. He'll never abandon you. He knows what you need before you ask. God is with you. You can find success where the Israelites found nothing but failure simply by walking with the Lord daily, staying humble before him, trusting him in everything. Friends, it's the message of the Old and New Testament together. He who has an ear, let him hear. Lord, I just thank you for your holy word. And I do pray, God, that what is fairly complex is made clear today by the reading of your word. Lord, I pray you help us today, maybe fill in the gaps of misunderstanding with understanding. Lord, I pray you make it clear. Lord, ultimately, we declare as a body of believers how much we love you and thank you for coming and saving us. Lord, you are the rock that brings life. Lord, you took the punishment that we deserved and saved us when we didn't have any reason or worth of saving. Lord, you did it for us and we give you thanks and praise. Lord, help us never take our eyes off the prize, never take our eyes off what's really important. And Lord, we rebuke the enemy. Lord, I know he wants to mess everything up, but Lord, we absolutely rebuke him. We rebuke him the way you did. We will trust the Lord for God's love the world that he gave his one only son whoever believes in him. So we believe in him, Lord. And so Satan, we have no desire for you. So Lord, we give you praise and thanks and all glory to your name in Jesus' name, amen.